This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about how we can cope and keep going in the face of heartbreaking loss. My guest today is Julie Zarifa, a New Zealand trained registered consultant clinical psychologist. Um, In her career, Julie has worked with people suffering from depression, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders, among other conditions. And then following the Christchurch earthquakes, Julie explored the psychological factors contributing to broken heart syndrome, a little understood cardiac condition. However, after tragic family loss in 2017, Julie has turned her focus to understanding resilience and how we can support it in ourselves and other people. Kia ora, Julie. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Kia ora. Julie, most people find it really challenging to come to terms with the loss of a spouse or a child. And you, dreadfully, have had to deal with both of those losses very close together. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and and how you responded, particularly, say, in the initial um, weeks after your loss? Mm. So Denise, you say, as you say, um, I had two losses in, in close proximity. So my husband, Paul, um, had been diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer in 2014. And we, we were actually really fortunate enough to have um, a three-year window in which he remained relatively well between treatments, um, which most people with pancreatic cancer actually don't. Their life seems a lot shorter. So... Um, so we did have a chance to prepare for Paul's early demise and, and terribly sad as it was, actually went hard and lived very hard for the three years from his um, diagnosis on and really squashed 20, 30 years of retirement into three. So sad as it was, the whole family were, you know, sort of had grieved in advance and, and by the time Paul did pass, we were relieved for him and for ourselves, actually. And have built a lot of, you've built a lot of really good memories into those three years as well, haven't you? So many good memories. Got, um, yeah, so many good memories. Family time, he and I time, time with him and his friends, just yeah. going hard and living hard. So, you know, Paul's um, passing, his funeral was actually a celebration of a life well lived. Um, and the three children and I were really proud to... Um, see him off in that fashion and and my eldest son Sam's parting words to Paul was that he was um, going to take over the role now of looking after mum and his two younger siblings. So you can imagine the shock 16 days later when I received a phone call to alert me to the fact that Sam had lost his life in a rafting accident um, on the west coast of New Zealand. So completely out of the blue, tragic accident, um, which just obviously rocked me, rocked my world, rocked mm. my two other children, Jared and Christy, and rocked everyone that knew us. It's like, how, how can that be? How? Beautiful, vibrant young man. Yeah. 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 And accidents happen and these have just the proximity to his dad's passing seemed pretty cruel at the time. And in the weeks that followed, look, I, re- I look back on this time now um, and I just think I was in shock. 
I do think I was in shock. But I'm also proud that somehow in that state of shock, I um, we managed to pull together another, you know, large funeral service for Sam. And we did both Sarita men proud in terms of celebrating the, their lives, that the rich lives they'd had. Um, um, I was just in automatic mode. And, um, you know, I do feel I somehow remained quite gracious throughout mm. and I was very mindful of actually that the grief wasn't mine alone. It was shared by many, many people, my two children, Jared and Christy, but also wide um, family on both sides, extended family and a huge number of friends and colleagues and what have you. So, That's um, such an interesting thing, Jenny. Like, um, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm really in awe that through that shock, you manage to keep going and pull together a funeral. And I think the word gracious is really very much how I would describe you, but also, but generous. That's a hugely generous thing to be able to, in your moment of, of shock and loss, to be able to appreciate how many other people are feeling it too. Mm. What, do you think, what do you think enabled you to do that? Look, I think probably in part you could put that down to both academic um, training and that, you know, as a clinical psychologist, you're obviously you're in that role because you're <laughs> wanting to help or look after other people. So I think that that was at play. But I also think my upbringing was at play and that we've been taught um, by our parents that... Um, you know, bad stuff does happen and, and your best way of dealing with it is to be dignified and, and there's very little to be gained from being angry or, uh, you know, blaming or regretful or any of those negative emotions. I just, um, I think those were the, probably the two main things at play and then, and my personality as a result of those two, um, forces coming together. So, yeah. Mm. And then, so you, yeah. you, you mentioned, you know, you, you were, you, you have trained as a clinical psychologist. So, did you know? Did your clinical training support or prepare you in any way for the your to for the grief that you experienced and the way that you managed it, or not? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I think it did. Although, obviously, it's a very different when you know sitting behind the desk preaching to. Um, giving advice and then suddenly being the one that has to give yourself advice. But I definitely had an advantage in that I um, knew all the tools and strategies that I'd been um, encouraging people to learn and use for years. So so both that and, again, that sort of intuition that I do have always been someone who knows what works for me when times are tough. So it's to pull on sort of all of that to um, think, right, what, what do I need to do here in order to keep myself um, on top of the situation because I could so easily have gone down that dreadful, dreadful rabbit hole of grief. It was very all-consuming and mm. and people who were around on the, the day after Sam's passing do say that I lay on the floor of our lounge in a fetal position most of the day, wailing. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. that's completely appropriate, isn't it? Mm. And 
it was just, so, yeah, just so hard to leave, so overwhelming. But, you know, second night of sleep and like, okay, Julie, come on. What do you have to do here to, to yeah, find some strength and resilience and pull together everything you need to pull together this next week and going forward in life? You know? I think this is lovely to, to focus on because what you've just described to me is that a, you are a really resilient person. You know the tools that work for you. You have your toolkit over the years. And B, even a resilient person with a toolkit um, will be floored by grief and will need to allow themselves to be floored and to experience that before mm. they're able to get back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've had a very individual response to grief and coping with loss and, and a very active one that's taken you the whole way around the world. Yes. So tell us a bit about that and kind of why it's worked for you. Mm. So, um, so I've, you know, reflecting back on knowing what, what's always worked for me, I guess, you know, when, when both men passed away, I was in my early 50s and always sort of had quite an active life. It's been something that's uh, defined me in terms of, just a sporty upbringing and being involved in all manner of different um, sports as a child and a teenager and then a young mum, you know, trying to get your body back and all that sort of stuff. So I knew that for me, what made me feel good was to be fit, to, to be fit and to, you know, manage my weight, for want of a better word, or, or be fit and, and active and feeling healthy. Um, and so I just intuitively knew that, that I needed keep that up and to even, you know, up the ante on that because it is something that allows me to feel that I can control um, at least <laughs> a small part of I mean, my environment. I'm sorry. Up the yeah. ante doesn't quite describe what you did. Come on, tell us a bit about what you've done. Okay. In so so, so we, in short, when Paul um, was close to, to passing, I saw an advertisement for a... Um, a walk on the other side of the world, the Camino, the way, which um, is a walk across the top of, of Spain. And uh, it's something I'd had pegged for ages that I was on my wish list anyway. So when I saw this wee ad and knew that the timing was going to sort of work, that Paul would have passed by then. And, and I was looking for a major exercise challenge and it really appealed that it was on the other side of the world and I could take my grief and be a little bit anonymous for a period of time. Um, off I went. So that was a um, that was a biggie. That was a thousand kilometre walk um, from a little village in France across to the the coast uh, the coast of Spain. Um, and fantastic, like the five weeks of walking and just reflecting, and um, but also focusing on your body. So I didn't, I wasn't immersing myself in sad thoughts all the time because you were more worried about um, were your feet going to hold up? You know, did you have blisters? How was your back, etc. So distraction is a, mm. a huge tool in, in any kind of adversity and, you know, particularly so with grief, I think distraction and allowing yourself that time to <clears throat> not deal with it all at once. Take your time to, you know, um, we call it in the trade adjustment. So that's, yeah, adjustment. To, and that had been my training as a clinical psychologist. I'd, I'd moved very quickly into the, the um adaptation of psychological tools and strategies to physical health um, diagnoses and long-term conditions. So I had, yeah. Um, and what else? Oh, Denise, so I 
bit of bit of cycling around Sri Lanka just actually prior to the Camino. So that was um, cycling 450 kilometres around uh, Sri Lanka and raising money for a children's charity back here in New Zealand, Variety.org, which was immensely rewarding. Um, you were just you weren't just being active in that case you were actually doing something for other people as well yeah. did that help yeah yeah it does so i i i actually do not know where the drive came from to make me realize very quickly that fundraising and being doing these things for charity were also really important tools for me i think I think Paul had been a he'd been a um, wetsuit manufacturer and advocate of you know all, all sporting for all ages um, surfing. Sam was a teacher. I think I wanted to honour their memories by doing something I knew they'd be immensely proud of and giving back mm -hmm. to the less fortunate. So we've we've been a fortunate family, and I wanted to raise money and so donated all these bikes to needy kids in New Zealand. Um, and then, the, you know, as you know, the pinnacle event of the year was um, the New York Marathon at the end of that first year of grieving and raised $14,000 for the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand, which is obviously a charity close to home too, being a clinical psychologist. But, um, yeah, so it gave huge sense of satisfaction to be giving of myself and giving of my time and resources and distraction, um, fun, fun, you know, connecting yeah. with others. And, yeah. And, and we both, you know, so you've mentioned, you know, yes, there was this d distraction, there was helping others. So that sense of altruism, but there was the physical challenge um, and also the fun. And I think, um, you know, I was talking to Judy Moskowitz recently, whose role is around um, studying the, the role that positive emotions help play in helping people cope with really strong, significant physical stress and challenge mm. and illness and, um, and loss. Mm. Um, and I think it's really sad when we think that um, laughter and fun can't be included as part of grieving. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I was biking around Sri Lanka two and a half months after Paul and Sam had passed away. I was joking. I was I was probably very quickly known as the joker amongst the group, um, the one that pulled out the positive, you know, sayings every night. And, and I think, what must they have thought? Did they think, yeah, this must be a shallow woman. She's not, um, you know, showing this huge amount. But the fact of the matter is that you can grieve adjacently. You can, um, the grief process is going to, it's going to happen of its own accord. And, and I gave myself the permission as, and I felt that Paul and Sam would want me to, to be, mm. um, happy whilst grieving, if that makes sense. Or, yes. you know, find, finding my bits of myself again and not, 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 of course, I was sad. I was terribly bereft, but um, but you can be sad, but but living as yourself also, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And I love that thing about living as yourself, and and that your approach—it's completely what you did in grief 
was consi completely consistent with who you are as a person and the life that you'd lived beforehand. And mm. I don't know, I think there's a really important lesson um, for us all here about grieving and coping in a way that's ours and allows us to still stay true to the essence of who we are and use our strengths. And um, it, it feels like it wouldn't have made sense for you to try to grieve in in a passive still way if anyone else had told you to anyway. No. no. Well, for one, I never do anything anyone else tells me to, but um, no, absolutely not. But, but, you know, again, I mean, well, we can come on to this, but I, I realised that um, I was pretty busy, pretty active, and, and, and knew at some time the crunch would probably have to come, and, you know, it was, it was delaying that because it was too, too big at the beginning. I had to... So do you feel that the... Um, I mean, I know, I know one of the terrible things about grief is that everybody feels like they're an expert and they can tell you what to do. Mm. People who've got no idea um, and mm. no training. But, mm. um, and, and I know some people told you you were running away from your grief. And, mm. and do you think that was true or that it was a, a really helpful management strategy to be active and bite off little yeah. bits but before you could slow down and, and open the yeah. book? Yep, yeah, no, I, I totally dis disagree that I was, you know, running away from my grief. Um, I was running with it. Yes. And yeah, yeah. and um, choosing to do things that kept me on top of it and allowed me to um, just, yeah, as you say, live live as myself, but also allow that grief process to run adjacently along. I mean, don't get me wrong, the, you'd hear a song or um, see a reminder or something, and you'd you know, have these moments of being floored by grief, but they don't have to define you 24-7, you know, seven days a week. It's, um, you can have those moments and have a good cry or um, or share a memory, whatever, but um, no, not I, running fr from grief at all. You know, there was no I denial. Like not running from grief, running with grief. And I know water, like, you know, Paul was a water suit manufacturer, Sam was a surfer. I know water is really important in your family. And I kind of like that metaphor there that you're, you're going with of um, staying on top of it. And did that yeah. feel like you were managing to stay on top of the water rather than sinking? Yeah, yeah, definitely. How did you know when it was time to slow down and how did you manage that process? Mm. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure that I knew when it was time to slow down. I think it just happened. Uh, and it happened, um, yeah, a year, year and a half, a year and two-thirds after the um, men had passed when I had been over in the Northern Hemisphere writing a book that um, I'd felt was had to be another a goal that I wanted to do. So it's, a, it's called Grief on the Run and it um, immortalises Paul's and Sam's memories and, and, uh, and then talks about strategies I did use to, to grieve. But so I'd finished writing that, which obviously um, I'd heard about this writer's depression anyway, which is a thing. So you finish this ma massive achievement and often kind of slump anyway and think, oh, okay, what next? So that happened 
in conjunction with me kind of hitting the wall a bit as well. And I guess that was inevitable, but I came back to New Zealand. I'd finished the book. I didn't have a job lined up. I There were a number of things going on at the time. And um be fair to say that the not only did I slow down, but I also probably got, you know, a little bit sad for a few weeks there um, for the first time, you know, and consistently for the first time felt, hmm, okay, that's all worked up till now. Um, feeling a bit moo-moo, what do I do mm. now? Mm. And, and so, so that yeah. really was you opening up the whole, to the full experience, you know, not the full experience, but just yeah, opening up and sitting with it. And allowing, yeah, yeah that to yeah. yeah, And I, I read, I, you know, I read you this amazing quote that I came across recently, which, which I feel actually really um, is quite apt. Um, so it's in the spot, I don't know if you've read uh, Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking. Mm. And there's a passage in this book that um, I feel really actually does talk about the grief state quite well. So... It says, the power of grief to derange the mind has been exhaustively noted. The act of grieving, Freud told us, involves great departures from the normal attitude to life. Yet, it never occurs to us to regard it as a pathological condition. We instead rely on overcoming grief after a certain lapse of time. Melanie Klein made a similar assessment. The mourner is, in fact, to a degree ill. But because the state of mind is common and seems so natural to us, we do not call mourning an illness. I should say that in mourning, the subject goes through a modified and transitory manic depressive state and overcomes it. Mm. And I think that's very apt. So manic as a not manic mania, but busy, 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 um, running with grief, not from grief. And then some point, you know, time to... Slow down, reset. Lie with it. Yeah. Think away the way forward. Yeah. So do do you agree with them that would you see grief as an illness or not? Or do you know? Because one of the things I'm curious about is no. you know, so many experiences in life um, are medicalized, and there is no. a view in some parts that grief has been over medicalized. I don't think it's an illness. I mean, I think obviously some of the symptoms can mimic that of illness in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of feeling fatigued and mm. lots of energy. I mean, like you say, the high and, and the know, low. Yeah, yeah, the highs and the lows, but I don't think it's a, I, I don't feel it's an illness. I think it's a very natural part of life. We're born, we die, we, you know, we, we grieve the dead, the loss, um, and I think other cultures probably do it a lot better than um, maybe the Western culture. I mean, I think it's for, oh, quite an individual process as well. Um, I don't think any, you know, very idiosyncratic based on your past experience of loss, um, your personality structure, your um, how you've had grief modelled to you. You know, mm. probably as a as a as a developing. Um, person so a whole lot of things are at play was there anything in particular that really really helped you or any other um, any other things apart from physical mm. activity that really were important for you in in dealing with and experiencing and, and coping with loss yeah yeah 
So, yes, I mean, I would I'd call the physical activity, you know, a big thing, but over and above that, um, I've got it down to sort of five or six things that really worked for me in my loss. So they were obviously the act of grieving, but as part of that, um, really really developing some deep emotional connections with people. So both new people and people that had been in my past that really kind of stood up for me um, with my losses. So, you know, but, but also those new emotional connections with people who you just resonate with for whatever reason. Um, the altruism with disgust, the giving really totally worked for me. Um, a deliberate, deliberate choice or choosing and what I focused on over those sort of couple of years since um, so again less of the negative more of the positive so just really trying to take notice of of the small things appreciate the beauty of nature appreciate the small gestures appreciate humor um, and just really trying not to sweat the the small stuff um, and learning. So again, maybe a theme for me, but I think for you know lots of people could um, appreciate this is that I've always been curious and a bit of a a learner, both academically but also in you know other facets of life. And so I took on some some more learning, and um, ironically, you know, furthered some psychology training. So. To, Diploma in positive psychology, but lots of the learnings of that in particular were just fabulous. Like they just spoke to me right through in terms of some of the, the more positive strategies that you know we can use to overcome adversity. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. It's kind of like a little fractal that you're doing the learning thing in itself is helpful, and then the content of the learning was also helpful. Yeah, yeah. Your situation was also challenging because it wasn't just you as a person dealing with the loss of these two people you loved you're also a mum to two adult children and mm. um i i know that that those family bonds can be both a huge demand and a huge support how did that play out for you mm. yeah so i mean as a family of five we've been very tight and a very close family so it was a you know very massive loss losses um, and then I was aware there were just the three of us, and I'd like to say that that the kids were able to support me as I, as much as I was then, but I don't actually think that's the case. I think I did realise that I had to be the role model for them. I'd I'd had grief before. I'd lost my parents and my brother, so I was, you know had some familiarity with, with bereavement, whereas for both Jared and Christy, it was their first experience of um, loss, and not only loss, but two losses, um, you know, their dad and their brother. So I, yeah, deliberately chose to model for them what I felt healthy, active um, grieving would look like and took them along the journey with me. So we, yeah, went to the Middle wow. East and trekked all over, you know, Paul's homeland and, so, yeah, they were, yeah, they were proud to take part in some of the exercise goals, etc. Now the probably tides turned a bit and they're able to um, support 
me a bit more as they've um, adjusted to the loss, but initially it was yeah very much trying to model for them. And and did that did that help you? Was that an extra burden, or was it a help on you to feel? Oh no, no, it was a, a help. Yeah, definitely a help. How did you cope with that vulnerability and all? Because we know that when we have these big losses, it's not just the big losses. There's all these other small ones that follow on all the secondary losses that go as mm. well that come mm. up and hit us uh, out of the blue. How did you, what strategies, you know, were there any particular tools, you know, like the mindfulness, self-compassion, anxiety? And I know you've spoken to some of these, but, but mm. Um, mm. any other tools that really we um, will go to? I mean, I think a, a big tool has been, been quite ceremonial in marking each and every sort of, uh, we just, yeah, I felt we had this duty to, to kind of do their memory proud by having a number of ceremonies around birthdays, anniversaries, but also, um, yeah, I've organised a sort of memorial seat in the summer, midwinter swim yearly to um, commemorate, you know, Paul and Sam, things like that. So I think that, that was the tool. But in terms of, you know, myself, um, it sounds very dull, doesn't it? But I've just continued to use my my way of looking after myself is making sure I get out on the beach every day mm. and walk with the dog. And that's my I mean, I guess there is a degree of mindfulness in that, but not mm. active sort of mindfulness Meditation. or relaxation mm. strategies per se. I'm more active than that. I'm not that good at pampering myself or, you know, I, I need to get better. But um music, music is yeah, I've got a few playlists that that I've created um, that are memorable playlists of, you know, favourite songs of Sam or favourite songs of mm. Paul or whatever. I think that's quite a goodie. Um, and probably reading quite a lot. On one hand, when you are kind of hit by a wave of something, you can retreat, you can learn, you can read, you can listen to music, but you can also get out be active, go for a walk mm. on the beach, that all of those things are things that really um, nurture and, and look after you. Yeah, yeah. Through the kind of vulnerable and, Yeah. Quite interesting, isn't it? I've just realised I've not mentioned work at all, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I have continued to work throughout as a clinical scientist, so I guess you could say that's also uh, kept me sane to a degree, but, um, but again, focusing on, on my Ford focus in my career so being very deliberate about mm. what aspects of clinical psychology I choose to yeah. go on with and, and, and having the I think with work it's also isn't it the the stability of the routine and the being yeah. anchored to a job and a place as well absolutely yeah mm. yeah 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 yes I think routine and structure is mm. incredibly important the strategies that you've employed and the way that you've done this really are um, a, a beautiful lesson to us all. Mm, so thank you. I think about you and your community out there at mm. 7 a.m. this morning in the cold and dark, and yep. the sleet, getting in for a swim. That is all of those things. Yeah. Um, Packaged up together in one, isn't it? It's, it's the community. Yep the getting together it's ritual it you know it's all of those yep. things and yeah. it is yeah it really is ceremony well done. ritual yeah yeah 
Julie, yeah, well, thank you. to talk yeah. to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're more than welcome. It was lovely to talk to you, Denise. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.